Good morning. It's awesome to see everybody here uh, when the weather told us it was going to be, um, I don't know, it's North Virginia weather, you never trust it, right? So you just make your plans and you go, which is great. There are um, two topics that every pastor must preach on uh, in his life um, that they approach with fear and trepidation. The first is finances. Because, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, congregants get allergies the day that you talk about finances. Um, The second is the biblical role of a wife. In fact, I find it suspect that for the past few years of Family Month, when we've broached the topic, somehow Pastor Steve was out of town that day. More curiously, um, this year the joke is on me because Kristen left yesterday for vacation with her mom in Mexico, which means my own wife had to flee the country the day that we talked about this. So, there's that. I'm actually really grateful to talk about this um, topic. I know the, um, perhaps the tone deafness of a, of a man opening the Bible and trying to tell wives what to do uh, appears incredibly... Um, maybe archaic and even perhaps patriarchal. Um, But I'm grateful for this opportunity because I don't get the sense that that's the type of congregation that we have. Nor do I ever get the sense from this congregation that our women are not hungry for the word of God uh, and to hear it and receive it with open hands and open hearts and open minds. Um, I'm grateful because uh, this is a church that allows me to pastor men just as much as it allows me to pastor women. And... um, my sisters in the faith here, you all have been so ferocious for the things of the gospel and uh, are, are, are tremendously interested in theology and, and live in life uh, after God's way. And so for that, I just want to say um, thank you for living for Jesus and not for our culture. And I approach this day um, aware uh, of, of just the dynamic at play, but grateful as well that I know that's not the dynamic here at this campus um, So, uh, by the Spirit's power, my prayer today is that you would hear my words spoken out of love, respect, honor, and hope. The the Old Testament and the New Testament both begin with marriage. Have you ever realized that? They both begin with marriage. In in Genesis, uh, Adam is given Eve. And in the New Testament, Joseph is given Mary. You've never thought about it until right now, did you? You're like, wow, wait, there's, there's this like mirroring that's happening. And what I, what I love about the scriptures is that at the end of the story, there is this consummation of the whole entire thing. That consummation, that's like a, uh, it's a marriage word, uh, if you think about what that means. Uh, and, and at the end of time, given in Revelation, the end of the story, the end of the New Testament, we have another marriage that takes place. It is the marriage, uh, we, we call it the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's a theological term for it. But really, what is it? It's a, it's a wedding feast. It's a celebration of, of, a, of a wedding. Who, who's getting married? Well, Christ is finally united with his bride, which is the church. Yeah, okay, some of you guys are like, I'm not a bride, I'm out. (laughs) But it's a beautiful picture for what what our relationship is to the Lord, that we are, like a bride is adorned for her husband, we are becoming more like the image of Christ so that when he receives us, we look like him. This is a beautiful thing. These are small, I think, perhaps... uh, biopics of Adam and Eve and Joseph and Mary, Christ and the church. They're, they're representative of God's good design for marriage and, and some of its more purer forms. God has some awesome intentions. This is a great spot for an amen, I think. God has some awesome intentions and illustrations for those who choose to get married. Amen? amen. 
I mean, there, 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 is a, there is a downing of marriage that happens in our world today that would make you think that marriage is the ultimate loser. Like, if you want to be miserable, get married. But, but God in his word has some actually incredible opportunities for you in marriage. Husband said, yeah, that's great. My fear, though, is that you could go your whole entire life and not hear any of those opportunities spoken to you by the world that we live in. You could could theoretically be an American today and live so culturally and so in the world today and not ever hear the message of Jesus, not ever hear the hope of the gospel. And and you could go cradle to grave and and think that marriage was just some form of sadistic uh, torture. The marriage was just some form of trying to chase pleasure after pleasure only to trade it in for different pleasures. Most people, if they're honest, um, they base marriage on some superficial standard. Um, is, is he rich? Is he handsome? Is he from a highly regarded family? Does the brother got style? Does he drive a good car? Often we base marriage upon the standard of how this person makes us feel. Do I feel pretty with him? Do I get butterflies? Do I feel transported to another world? Do I feel like the luckiest man or woman alive? Well, tell me if this isn't true. The, probably the number one bottom line for every couple looking at marriage, every person in a relationship when they look at marriage, the question they ask themselves is very simple, it's very basic, it's this. Does this person make me happy? I mean, isn't that the question that your parents asked you when you said, hey, can I get married to this person? They said, well, does he make you happy? Right? We're told at the end of every fable, every classic story, that they all lived. Thank you. Okay, so this is the same world that we live in. That there is at the end of our fables and Disney stories some sort of happiness that is pervasive, that is eternal, that we all long for. The, the problem with this is that um, we've read almost the entirety of Romans. And that storyline has not appeared at all, has it? That God has created you to be happy. And that God is giving you opportunities in your life to become happy. No, actually, uh, Romans is a dagger to the heart of women who have bought into the cultural myths of happiness via marriage. That storyline. What is Romans taught? us about ourselves that we can then in turn apply to wives? That's the general question that I'm asking today here in this third week of family month. First principle, I got one principle today with three applications. So here's the first one, all right? The first is this, and you, you, you ought to write this down, ladies, men, you ought to write this down as well. First principle that Romans has taught us about ourselves that we can apply to wives and, and in, in some sense who we are and the purpose of our lives, it's this. It's that the gospel is the godly wife's core identity. I hope you feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. Here's the theme verse for the series of messages. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. It says this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And what I love about the Greek is that it's kind of like Spanish. If you ever took Spanish, um, you know sometimes you say amigos, and that's for like all including every gender that's in the space. And Greek is the same way. This word is actually... Um, the plural form, and it includes both genders. So we could literally put more ink on the page and say brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, 
to present your bodies. Everybody say bodies. We remember this, this means the whole entirety of who we are, our, our lives, everything about us, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Anybody want that in their lives? Like to be able to know, like, God, what would you have for me? It comes when you're not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, uh, unfold your truths in your word for us today. I pray for my words to be um, a balm that reaches the hearts of many uh, wives in this room and for many husbands in this room and many who are aspiring to such things. Help us, Lord, to see your goodness in this, to see the gospel at play. And help us, Lord, to see principles by which we should order our lives to reflect Christ. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. The gospel is the godly wife's core identity. And it's found, how do I get that? It's found because of the mercies of God. The mercies of God is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for us to be in a relationship with him. He, he changes us to live the way we were born to live. This news about change, Jesus changes everything we are as a people down to our core identity. We, we go from, in the gospel, we spent all this December talking about this. We go from guilty people to free people. We go from shameful people to forgiven people. We go from sinners to being redeemed. We go from enemies of God to being called his friend. We go from the rebel against God to be calling his child. When we say around here the gospel changes everything, this is kind of what we mean, is that at the core of who you are, it changes your identity. I want to show you this a little bit holistically from another part of scripture, from, from Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes in Colossians 1 about Jesus. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a crazy word. It just simply means to have first place. He means that in everything, including your marriage, including your family, including the way that you go about your life, Christ would be everything to you. And the very next words, listen to them as I read what Paul says about what this authority and this, what this preeminence of Jesus does in the heart of the Christian in, in us and in Paul even himself. Look at how this gospel changes our very identity. It's the last couple words of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, and you, he turns it, he says, Look how great Christ is. He's, he's the first of everything that he might have first place. And then he says, and then in you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the, if you're, if you're taking notes in Colossians, underline this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Romans 12, Colossians 1 have a beautiful symmetry to them. A beautiful arc that traces and harmonizes with each other. In both instances, Paul shifts from this lofty exclamation about who Jesus is and shifts the focus on what the gospel does in us at our core. Like who you are in the absolute essence of your being. 
before you add any of the layers of this world, before you add any of the occupations that you have or any of the volunteer roles that you do or any of the, 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 the places in this world that you have authority, before you add any of those to your thought, who are you at your core? The gospel tells you you are changed radically to become shaped in the image of Jesus in his likeness. This gospel has transferred us to the dominion where Jesus is Lord and he has made us ministers of this reconciliation, meaning we spend our lives living out his forgiveness, his hope, and his love. And Paul, I love it in Colossians 1, he closes out that whole chapter saying, giving a categorical, me too, <laughs> even I, Paul, am, am included in this. God has saved me, made me a minister, and that's the new identity that he has. So, so how do we apply this to wives? Um, well, the, the godly wife knows first and foremost that it's her relationship with Jesus that matters most to who she is, not her relationship to her husband. You don't hear that on NBC. <laughs> you don't hear that on BuzzFeed. You don't get that on Vogue. You don't hear that on Oprah. If anything, it's your relationship with yourself that matters the most. The gospel wife, though, understands that, that, that it's about Christ in her life first before it's about Christ in her life with anybody else. Um, I, I love uh, Elizabeth Elliot put in one of her books. She wrote it this way. She said, the fact that I am a woman does not make me a different type of Christian. That takes some thinking. But the fact that I'm a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. Sisters, if, if you know Jesus, your identity is not tied up in the person in your life who maybe does or does not know Jesus, in your husband. No, if you know Jesus, you are fundamentally changed because you're a Christian first. Which means, women, you are not your marital status. Women who are married, um, you are a wife to your spouse to your husband for sure but you are more than that you're a child of god an heir to the eternal inheritance kept in heaven for you which is purchased by jesus and if you're not married you are more than your singleness amen can we just say amen to that a little louder because because if you're a single woman this is a this is something that you need to hear that you rarely hear that maybe you preach to yourself but it's helpful to hear someone else reaffirm this in your life if you are not married and you are a woman, you are more than your singleness. Amen, church? You are a child of God, a daughter of the king, precious, known intimately by him and loved deeply. Here's the problem. Everything that I'm saying sounds good to us theologically, but in our world, it does not sell products. Chris and I were talking this week about something I said in last week's sermon towards men. I said one of the ways that men derive their identity is not by the outside world telling them who they are, but by this intrinsic, internal quest to self-identify or to give themselves worth. And I said, um, it seems to me that women are under an immense amount of pressure from the world telling them who they are, and the world tells them who they are in the context of familial relationships. And Kristen said to me, I was happy to hear it, she said, yeah, I agree with that. And I was like, thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. All right. She said, if you want to make your point, just look at how men and women are marketed to you differently. 
She said, that's, all you, that's the only place you have to go. Just look in our world how we sell items to women compared to how we sell items to men. Men, if you're marketed a Ford F-150, you're told that this truck will do a better job than the truck that you already have, and that by buying this truck and being more efficient, you'll feel better about yourself. That's why you pay that much money for a dumb truck. And if you're, if you're offended by that, let's go back to last week's message. You are a Christian first. Good night. Yeah. See, there's always something for the guys in these messages, right? Yeah. And we're off. We're going. All right. This is... They didn't teach me how to deal with the car wars in seminary. Women... You were, you were told about yourself that not, you know, you need a truck, although I love that GMC ad where the wife chooses the truck from the Christmas. That was great. But, but women, you're told, listen, you're, you're told, hey, not that, you know, this is going to be more efficient and you're going to feel better about yourself. You're told that these paper towels are going to clean up the mess a lot quicker, better than the other brand. And so you'll be a better and more efficient wife and you will be pleasing your family. Your use of a product is tied into how you will feel in relation to other people around you. You will be desirable. You will be loved. You will feel loved. All of it is tied to your identity. And if you get this, your, your husband you know, will love you more. Or maybe you'll have a better chance at getting a husband. If you just use this product, this can make you more valuable in relation to other people. And, and what does Jesus say? He cuts right through all that and he says hogwash. I don't know that's a word that we actually use, but it gets the point across. He says, you're valuable because of who I say you are. No product can increase what is already precious to me. But why does it work? Why does this advertising trick work? It's because we want more than anything to be loved, to be valued, and to become important. And because romantic relationships are so enticing, Hollywood, Broadway, Nashville can't stop romanticizing, I use that word intentionally, what a happy marriage will do for you. A happy marriage will finally give you the worth you've been craving. If you're single, I want you to hear this and see this for the trap that it absolutely is. This is a trap I call the millstone trap, and, and here's, here's why I call it that. The, the marriage that is entered into as a means to validate who you are as a person, to, to give you some greater identity, to help you feel more alive, to help you feel like you're finally getting what your soul is longing for. Oh gosh, this is such a a terrible way that people approach the altar, but I see it in their eyes every time I do a wedding. The marriage that is entered into as a means to validate who you are as a person or to find who you want to be as a person is a millstone that is hung around your neck that people may never even see, but you know it's there. Dragging you down, trying to always get this burden of something greater that you want even more off of your neck and you, 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 you place this weight around you that your spouse was never designed to relieve you of that burden. I mean, women, of all people, even today, I mean, you know, we've spent decades making fun of men, but you know that guy's not gonna help you, right? I mean, you know walking to the aisle, up to the altar, that if your hope is in the fact that you're marrying a good man for you to have a good life, you have misplaced who you actually are. Goodness and happiness is not even the goal. 
What does Jesus say? He says this. Because we've got to be able to remove the trap, to get out of the trap. How do you remove the millstone from around your neck that you've put, placing all of your expectations in somebody else? So Jesus says it this way. He says, um, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. We, um, we have a lot of people around here that are into agriculture, but not many people plow fields today with yokes, and that's okay. Um, a yoke was a means of sharing a burden. It's interesting. We, we think that the way to actually find happiness in our life is to remove ourselves from all of these burdens, to just be unburdened everything. It's like the promise of nirvana. Like, you have nothing holding you back. What does Jesus say? He says, no, no, you got to get rid of that one thing, but take another thing in its place, and it's the yoke that I give you. Put something around your neck for sure. Be, be, be strapped together, walking in step with me. In um, Jesus' day, a yoke was a means of sharing a burden, but it was also a sign of ownership, that we belong in lockstep with our Savior. So, so when we accept Christ as the Lord of our lives, our opportunities change. No longer is marriage then going to be something that is going to be a bait and switch for us. You know, the promise of happily ever after, which turns into more mediocre ever after or more miserable ever after. No, when we get our core identity is actually rooted in Jesus, it allows, I think, three things to unfold in our lives, in our marriages, three things to unfold in our lives, in our singleness, that will actually um, help us live out this identity more completely. How does a married woman, a married Christian woman, live out her identity as a Christian in her marriage, three ways. First, this woman understands, if she knows who she is in Jesus, that, that, that she's yoked to him, she understands the motive for sacrifice. She understands the motive for sacrifice. Romans 8.32 reminds us that it was the father who sent the son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? That's the, that's the verse that I want to anchor this to, that, that we understand that, that the Christian life is one of sacrifice. Christ gave up every part of himself for us. He gave us his friendship. Remember that part of the scriptures, he says, I call you friends. He gave us his intellect. Colossians 3 tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Uh, He gave us his emotions. Standing in the graveside, he wept for his friends. Standing over Jerusalem, he wept for the city. He gave us his authority. He said, whatever you ask in my name will be given to you. He gave us his will, which was not my will, but yours be done, O God. He gave us his body when he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he gave us his breath. On that cross, he gave up that which gave him life for us. Why did he do it? Why did Christ make such a great sacrifice for us? Very very simply, one reason. Because the motive of sacrifice is always to give life. In every one of these examples, Christ's sacrifice is a life-giving sacrifice. The things he did for us cost him something that were beneficial for us because they caused us to flourish and thrive. On the back end of Jesus' sacrifice is a better life for us. Amen? I mean, anybody willing to stand up and say, I'm better off now because I know Jesus and the forgiveness he's given to me? Anyone willing to say, my life is radically different because Jesus died and came back to life? 
Yeah. The greatest sacrifice produced in us the greatest life. Someone um, in our church once asked me what my definition of love is, and without really missing a beat, I, I said this, love is that which gives life. Just categorically, just put it out there, whatever you think love is, love is that which gives life to another. How do we know God's love? Well, we know it because God's sacrifice, he gave himself for our salvation. I don't want to be misunderstood. The godly wife will certainly model what it is to sacrifice. But what I said above is that she understands the motive for sacrifice. And that's really what I want to get to here. So there's a motive for sacrifice that is good and godly. There's a motive for sacrifice that I think is worldly. Why did Jesus give up his breath? Because of love. He in himself loved the world. So he gave. I'm reminded once more about the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Her story is one that is, I think, legendary in Christian circles. She died in 2015. The New York Times ran a huge biopic on her um, in it in, in 2015. And just an incredible story. Many people have, have heard it. Hers is, is one that's legendary as she and her husband were missionaries to a remote tribe of people in Ecuador who turned on her husband and killed him. She lived, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that when her husband Jim argued passionately that he and the others should pursue contact with a savage group of people, she did not argue, but she trusted God. Because she saw in the sacrifice of her husband that he was willing to risk something. He was trying to bring life to people who were living without Christ. For many of us, losing a spouse on foreign soil would be um, cause for us to bail on the mission to get the first ticket back home. But she remained and returned to the same tribe of people with her toddler. She shared the gospel of Jesus with them. She wrote her deepest prayer was for the day when the savages would join us in Christian praise. That those who took the life of her husband, because of her devotion to her Savior, that, that she would plead to God that they wouldn't just know her husband's call, but, but they would know the call of her husband and the call of her life and the call of all of our lives is to know Jesus. She paid a tremendous sacrifice in her marriage. She, she paid a tremendous sacrifice with her life, but she understood the motive to make such a sacrifice. What was it? It was love. It was to give life to people who needed life. See, love is the motive for sacrifice, not fear. And I, I want to sit on this just for a second, and, and I know our time is waning, but I want to talk to, to some wife in this room right now. I don't know who you are, but I, I know that you're here. You may be in a marriage that is not bathed in love, but rather it's boiling in fear. It's possible to sacrifice yourself for things that will not bring about life in your marriage. I wonder if you find it hard to sacrifice in your marriage out of love or you find yourself making decisions based on fear of your husband. I want to encourage you, um, sister, please speak up. We have so many women who would walk through this season of life with you and help you even understand and come to find health and balance in your marriage and to even discern what the Lord would have you do in such a place. It pains me to see so many Christian women out of some misplaced motive for sacrifice, putting themselves in harm's way 
thinking that that's the thing that's going to save their husband. Some sort of laying down of themselves without any sort of love being seen in their relationship. And I don't know what that means for you, but I I simply want you to say, I want you to hear that when fear is the motive for your sacrifice, it's a signal to us that something is wrong. And so I want you to take heed, ask for help. Okay, we, we at Bethel would love to connect you with a godly woman who can walk through this with you. Is that fair? Church, do we agree? In fact, I think this type of understanding, the motive for sacrifice, leads us to the second principle or the second way that the godly life lives out her core identity. First, she understands that love is the motive for sacrifice. And then second, she, she demonstrates the mode of service, the mode of service. We read Proverbs 31, uh, some of it uh, this morning. Proverbs 31 is a classic text of womanhood from the scriptures. Do you know what a classic is? A classic is a book that nobody reads, but everybody quotes. <laughs> I wonder when the last time was that you actually read Proverbs 31. You might be surprised at the portrait of this godly woman. One of the hallmarks is the modes in which she serves. She is a model for us. What does she model? Well, we would think that the Proverbs 31 woman models service. Or I asked Kristen, I said, what do you think, you know? that she, she models for us. She said, industriousness. You know, she's effective. She's efficient. I said, yeah, kind of, but I think there's something even greater than that. Um, it's courage. What does she model for us in the way that she serves? She models courage. Let me just highlight a few things. She's not afraid. She's not afraid of working with her hands. She's not afraid of providing food for her family. She's not afraid of business transactions, nor of what she's going to wear. She's not afraid of sleepless nights, nor people who are of a lower class than her. She's not afraid of snow. No, it's literally in there. See, you haven't read it. Proverbs 31, 21. She's not afraid of snow. Why? Because her kids are literally clothed in scarlet or they're double lined. You know what that means? They got down coats. I'm not making that up. She's not afraid of her husband's movement in the community, nor is she afraid to laugh. She's not afraid to teach kindness. She's not afraid of her future because there's one thing she does fear. It's the Lord. This is the message of Proverbs 31 is that, wives, if you want to be godly wives, fear God and live courageously amongst people. Fear today, I think, has paralyzed many of us, women and wives included. We're afraid of many things. I shudder to make a list in 2021 the things that we are afraid of. The list goes everywhere from COVID to socialism to um, never being able to drink coffee again because your kid's always at home. Is that just me? That's a, that's a me problem. The gospel allows us to cease our worry because we know God is a provider. He has not withheld his own son. How will he also not graciously give us all things? A few verses earlier in Romans, Paul asserts this truth. It says Romans 8, 28. He says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And even before we read that verse, we read this verse. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The gospel is an antidote for our fear. And wives, it is the thing that allows you to live courageously in this world, whether it's in your marriage or in your singleness or in your job. The gospel gives you a backbone. 
2020 was the unveiling of all of our fears. I wonder if you plunged into despair over the fact that your son or daughter may never have a normal playground experience because COVID requires six feet and a mask. Or if you feared for your husband's job or maybe his promotion wasn't going to come through. If you're a man and you look at the pandemic right now, you worry about the stock market. If you're a woman and you look at the pandemic right now, you worry about your job. Wives, I know that there's a lot at stake. Women, I know there's a lot at stake right now in this world. All the statistics tell us that economically, women are hit harder than men in the past year and probably will continue to be so. Where do you go with those concerns? Where do you go with those fears? Perhaps it's not even, you know, pandemic-related. Maybe you just fear your neighbor who had an opposition party sign in their yard this fall. Or maybe single women, you fear your dating life being jeopardized because it's hard to connect with people. Amy Bird, who's a really tremendous theologian in her own right, she posted this thought about fear. I thought it was helpful, and I want to share it with you. She suggests that all fear is tangled up in idolatry, meaning it shows us something that we worship that isn't God. We are, in Romans 12, commanded to offer our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. That's our spiritual act of worship. And anything we offer our lives to other than God is an idol. Here's what she says. She says this. She says, think about your current afflictions and unmet desires. What do they serve? Do you really trust God? I mean, really trust him. The idol's best friend is fear. Fear always tags along because our enslavements to an idol attaches all our meaningfulness and value to it. When we're not idol chasing, there is consistent anxiety that we may lose or never attain that idol that we are worshiping. But God's word says, be anxious for nothing. I think it's more than coincidental that Joshua tells us multiple times to be strong and courageous. And the final declaration is simple, that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A wife who gets that at the core of her identity is the gospel will serve the Lord as the default mode for her serving people. Wives, I think one of the best things you can do for your husband is to courageously serve God. However that looks, however he calls you. I wonder if he's opened up doors for you in your neighborhood to teach Bible studies in your home. Do it. Do it courageously and a godly husband will be edified by your example. Have you been given influence at your kid's school or in your workplace? Courageously use that influence to serve others in Jesus' name. I wonder if you and your husband are weighing life-altering options for your future courageously jump into the conversations with him and see where you can help. Fear is not only the enemy of sacrifice, but the enemy of service. And a godly wife shows her husband how to serve, which is courageously, courageously. Third and finally, not only does she um, understand, understand the heart of sacrifice and the mode of service, but finally, she extends a heart of forgiveness a heart of forgiveness. If you were here last week, this is the point of the sermon where you should be crying foul. You should be standing up and calling me lazy. You should be going, don't you have anything else for us, pastor? What do you do all week? You're just taking your kids sledding all week? Come on. 
And the reason I say that if you weren't here last week is because this is the exact same outline I gave to husbands. The exact same thing. Because a Christian who has at their identity the core Christ and is being transformed into Christ's likeness is going to center their lives first and foremost before they talk about how in their family they're supposed to relate with one another. They're first and foremost going to put at the center of their lives the gospel, which is marked by sacrifice and by service and by forgiveness. Last week I ended with an encouragement to wives to extend a heart of grace to any husbands who need to confess something to them. And I wonder this week if some wives found that forgiveness comes with a cost. We are not surprised by this. It cost Jesus his life to purchase our redemption. But the rewards of forgiveness always outweigh the cost. Amen? Amen. And I feel like I'm going to hear that more from husbands who have been forgiven by wives for sure. Nowhere else in a marriage will you actually tangibly feel the gospel present than when you forgive one another for the sins that they've committed against you. I'm so grateful in Kristen and I's marriage that We've had the openness and the confidence in our God to be able to approach one another in repentance and confession on a continual basis. To say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. I did this thing, or I said this thing, or I thought this thing. To be met, not by your greatest shame and your fears, but by God's great love and forgiveness. No greater act in the world has proved to me the greatest act in the world, which is Jesus dying on the cross for my forgiveness. Wives, you hold that power in your hands to be able to forgive. The world holds grudges, but the, the gospel holds grace. We are justified, which means we have a right relationship. It's the foundation of peace, and this forgiveness is the path towards this right relationship. God has forgiven and justified us in Jesus and has brought us peace with himself. And that Rightness with God is shown in how we forgive one another. God is faithful to forgive those who confess their sins. That's what John tells us. And so a Christian marriage is not one in which everyone's perfect, but where everyone knows they are and must be forgiven. So sisters, don't let the world tell you that you are your last name. Tell the world that you have a new name. Not because of your godly husband, but because of your God. And show them how your God has let you sacrifice and serve and forgive in your marriage so that you can truly be presented holy and acceptable to God, living your life as an act of worship to him.